0: Hi everybody, this is Brian from Attendance Bias and I'd like to welcome you to the last, for now, classic episode of the podcast as I took my break during the month of January and I'm ready to come back next week, uh, the second week of February with a whole bunch of new exciting fun episodes. For this last classic episode of Attendance Bias, I'd like to present one of what I consider to be the best deep dives into early ish fish history and today's interview was with Sue Drew who worked A&R for Electra Records in the early 90s and therefore she was the person who signed fish to electra and as i mentioned in the proper episode intro i love fish's music of course but i'm also a history buff and when i'm able to combine those two interests well there's nothing better so in this interview, you know, I reach out usually to fans and pretty much anyone who wants to talk and geek out about Fish but it's rare that I'm actually able to get someone who is involved with the business side of Fish, As we all know, they're pretty secretive about that part. So to hear from someone who is a first-person point of view, a primary source, so to speak, and tell us what it was like to know the band at that time when Trey himself was only 26, when they were growing exponentially and beginning their takeover of the world, or at least mid sized venues... I was thrilled that Sue agreed to speak to me, not only about her role in Fish's professional history, but also about a really classic show, December 28th, 1990, at the Marquee in New York City, a venue which no longer exists. So if you're into old school Fish, if you're into young Fish, and if you're into hearing a little bit of a peek behind the curtain about Fish's history, enjoy today's classic episode from Sue Drew, A&R person for Electra Records, who signed Fish to the record label, talk about December 28th, 1990. And I'm so excited to see you next week for brand new episodes and for several months after that. Enjoy. and welcome to today's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Now, I have to be honest. I love every single episode of Attendance Bias. I'm proud of every episode, and I'm grateful to every single guest who's willing to come on to the show and talk about a favorite jam or a favorite show of theirs. That said, I also have to tell you that just like all of you, my interest of Fish goes beyond the music and extends into their history, the mythology of the band's upcoming, their behind the scenes action and their business and everything involved with whatever happened to bring them to the band known as Fish that we know and love today. So an episode like today where I get to interview a person who is absolutely crucial in their development, not only as a musical group, but as a force to be reckoned with within the music industry, really makes me come away glowing. And that interview today is with music industry legend Sue Drew of Cobalt Music Publishing. Not only does she work now at Cobalt Music Publishing, but for a time in the late 80s or early 90s, she worked at Electra Records. And during that time, she stumbled across a young foursome that was playing in New York City at the time, known as Fish. And... You'll hear more about it later. I don't want to spoil the details, but Sue Drew, long story short, is the person who signed Fish to Electra Records. Even more importantly, Sue not only talks about the business side of her relationship with Fish, but it's very clear throughout her discussion that she is a fan, died in the wool, of the band and their music. For today's episode, Sue decided to speak about December 28th, 1990 at a small venue that no longer exists in New York City called the Marquee. This is the first time that Sue ever saw fish and even more exciting, and I'll leave it to the episode to tell you what inspired her to approach them to sign them to Electra. So that's enough from me. I just want to get to the episode as quickly as possible. Let's listen to my interview with superfan Sue Drew of Cobalt Recordings about December 28th, 1990 at the Marquee in New York City.
1: Let's meet today's guest.
0: Sue Drew of Cobalt Music Publishing. Thank you so much for joining me today on Attendance Bias. It is my pleasure, Brian. Very exciting to be here. I'm also excited to have you here because of the episodes that we've had so far. Everyone's excited to talk about Fish and a special moment that they've had, but you certainly fill a unique role in their history, in that you were at a major turning point for Fish when they signed with Elektra Records. And I think that Fish, as a business, as a band, but also as a business, is very secretive about what goes on behind the scenes. All of fish is an inside joke. And for fans, we just see the tip of the iceberg, what happens on stage. And you kind of saw a little bit under the water with that. You saw a little bit under the iceberg. And I can't wait to hear your side of that story way back in 1990. Before we get to it, though, you're the general manager of creative at Cobalt Music Publishing. For people who don't know much about the music business, what is your day to day? What do you actually do?
1: So as the GM creative at Cobalt, a position I've had for eight years now, my role is to oversee the U.S. creative team. And the creative team is much like an A&R team at a record label. We're the people that sign the songwriters and some of the time they're artists as well. So we sign the artists and writers and we work creatively with them. If they want collaborations with other artists and writers, we put them in sessions If they've written songs that they'd like pitched to other artists, we pitch those songs. It's just general creative and um, helping somebody further their career
0: while they're at Cobalt. So you would work, let's say, with Bernie Taupin more than Elton John in a situation like that? Well, Elton is equal songwriter. He writes
1: the music, Bernie writes the lyrics. I don't care who writes what, <laughs> and as long as it's a song that comes out at the end, we want to work with the songwriters. So, yeah, what I'm saying is that some artists actually write their own songs and some do not. If it's an artist that doesn't write their song, they would not have a publishing deal because publishing only deals with the songwriting aspect of somebody's career. So, we have many artists that are signed to us, you know, from people in Fleetwood Mac to the Foo Fighters to you know Gwen Stefani. But they write their own songs, which mm-hmm. is why they're signed to us. We wouldn't sign somebody like Barbara Streisand not right. a songwriter
0: All right. And before that, you worked a and r, right? Yes
1: for many, many years. I started in AR in 1986. I was an assistant in an AR department at PolyGram Records in New York. And I there found my first artist that I brought to the label, a woman named Michelle Shocked. And we signed Michelle. And then I got promoted to a junior AR person. And then I left PolyGram about a year later and went to Electra. Which is where I, I signed They Might Be Giants and then Fish in
0: 1991.
1: And then after that, I went to Warner Brothers. And I mean, I, I've been around quite a while. And done yeah. A lot
0: of the only time I heard, or the first time I heard the phrase A and R, I didn't even know it was two letters. I didn't know it was an acronym. I thought it was A and R. Yeah. I thought it was I a single word. <laughs> yeah, there I heard it. I remember from the Tom Petty song Into the Great Wide Open, which is for anyone who doesn't know it is about a, uh, you know, an up and coming singer and they record an album him and his girlfriend and the narrator Tom Petty says their A&R man says I don't hear a single. Yeah. So, my understanding again and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that an A&R person's job is to promote. Is it to make is it to make their music more palatable to a wider audience?
1: Um, well, not exactly. What ANR what stands for is artist and repertoire. And so it's a it's an old school term that really existed before artists wrote their own material. So the &ANR man would find songs to then send to his artist to record. But really what it means today is discovering the talent, signing the talent to the record company, or in my case, if it's a publishing situation, and then being the internal cheerleader for that artist within the record company. You know, for me, I gravitated towards artists that that had a clear vision. They knew who they were. They weren't looking for my help in discovering themselves. They had been discovered internally. And uh, so my my role was really just to help them acclimate to being signed to a label and then help them release their music out into
0: the world. So like a liaison between an artist and the record company?
1: Yeah. I mean, you work for the record company, but really I, every A&R person feels that they work for the artist. It's just the natural way because you're so uh, hoping that, the world will discover this artist as you have and feel as passionately about them as you do. So, but yeah, you're employed by the label. (laughs) So Um, sometimes there's conflicts.
0: Well, I'm really excited to dig into that quite a bit because I think Fish fans all have a sense of ownership because of their discovery of the band and Fish has flirted with mainstream success. They never, in my opinion, quite got there. And that's not a failure in their case. They're, probably the most successful touring band that, you know, doesn't really care about recorded music in a studio, at least they they don't, they've never reached uh widespread fame. When you mentioned other bands that you've uh, worked with, I don't know. I feel like that would put you in a difficult position for a band that doesn't really want to be not, no, well, maybe not want to be, but a band who's not that interested in being in pleasing a record company.
1: Yes. It it was difficult. It was difficult on both sides of it. Firstly, it was difficult to convince the band to sign to a major label because it's not really something they were aspiring to. They didn't really care they were going to do what they were going to do. They didn't want the, you know, the specter of this label hanging over them, trying to turn them into something that they weren't. And it's also difficult to bring an artist into a label if you don't think there's commercial potential. But artistic direction and commercial potential can work hand in hand. And just because Fish didn't want to play the label game doesn't mean they didn't have potential to sell records. And I think that's what was the most exciting to me. It's, It's that they were... 100% unique and focused on their path. But I felt that it would be something that many, many people would respond to. So.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. And we're going to get into that for sure. But I agree with you. You know, there are artists just off the top of my head, like Tom Waits, for example, or Warren Zevon, who are only true to themselves. And yet they do have very large followings and have both reached a degree of commercial success. Absolutely, two of my very
1: favorite artists, as a matter <laughs> of fact. And and for for Warren Zevon in particular, he, you know, he was an excellent songwriter, and other yeah. people covered his songs, um, but he wasn't going to play any games. You know, I don't think I don't know if Fish looked at it harshly, like, oh, we don't want to be part of this, you know, infrastructure of. A you know big multinational corporation. I, I don't know how much they thought about that part of it. I think they really just thought we don't really need this. Yeah, I we mean, my guess
0: from what I've read, it, it seems that there's a big part of Fish, and I truly believe this because they grew up in the '70s uh, when album rock was you know the pinnacle of commercial success. I think that making an album is so important to them because, to be honest, they never have to make another album again for the rest of their professional lives. They could retire multimillionaires without laying down another studio recording. But I think that whether it's Trey or Paige, any one of them, thinks that there's something to getting a gold record. I think they see it like it's in their DNA as humans and as music fans.
1: You know, uh, they have a gold
0: record, a live one. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs)
1: Maybe the others have too, by now, but that that went gold kind of right away. Um, but, yeah, I think that's true. and And I've said this before in another interview, the thing that ultimately, I think attracted them to signing to Electra Records, was when I had them up to our office, which was in Rockefeller Plaza and very, you know, decorated up to the nines as a record label was trying to look cool. And, <laughs> and we were cool, actually, for label. Electra's
0: well, always then been I cool. I opened
1: the, um, the CD cabinet, which was this cabinet where we had, you know, most of the CDs from artists that had been on Electra Records through the years. And when you open that cabinet and you see this incredible bounty of talent, I think they went, oh, yeah, we want to be part of that lineage because, you know, it's just an amazing group of talented people in all genres. And as you say, album artists. Because Electra really became, I think, really came into its own during that era.
0: Well, I remember when I read a biography about The Doors, Mm-hmm. And I think the first music billboard that was taken out in Hollywood was for their first album, The Doors' first album, that it was the, the four of them, their faces, like a familiar uh, picture. And it said, break on through with an electrifying new album. Yeah. And I think I was only 12 years old when I read that book. I was getting into my classic rock phase. And it was the first time I really fused together a record label with a personality. To me, it could have been any you know, any record label produced any artist. It didn't matter to me. It was just music. But I think I, that surprised me. I remember in my young adolescence that there was a label that tried to make a personality for itself for the consumer.
1: It, it did. And it succeeded. And it continued to do that. And I would say that, you know, we would have many meetings uh, internally where the chairman would say, people buy Electra records. They trust in the brand of Electra. They see that E on a record, then they're going to they're going to take a chance on it and buy it. And I think that's true. You know, it was a artistic, aesthetic, not not single lane, not single minded, but you knew it was going to be quality. That was that was important for me working there. Like I wanted to be associated with a label that was quality.
0: You want to be cool, right? They're the cool, uh, band. They're well, the cool. Band.
1: <laughs> I came from Polygram previously to that. It's like, Oh, that's not very cool. <laughs> Let me go to Electra.
0: Well, I remember when I would also get Zeppelin albums, that Atlantic, like that yes. was very, very much. You could tell, Oh, that's an Atlantic record because it wow. looks like my Led Zeppelin records.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Those logos were very meaningful. So how did you first get into fish? How did they first get on your radar? So when I was a
1: young a person, I subscribed to the CMJ, which was College Music Journal. Sure. And it was an actual journal, long-paged journal. And I saw on the cover uh, one week a picture of Lawn Boy. And they would put four album covers each week. And a lot of times I would then go down to Tower Records and I would buy the records that were on the cover of CMJ. things. Things moved way more slowly in these days because in those days, because we didn't have social media, nothing was immediate. It just you took your time. So I would go to tower probably every week. I would buy records, I would listen to them. So I bought Lawn Boy and I put it on, and it was it was the most extraordinarily odd record I had heard. Maybe <laughs> ever. I don't know. It could have been ever. I, I I have a classical music background and I have a lot of um, tolerance for a lot of stuff. And, but I thought, wow, there's something about this. It's, it's really interesting. I don't know what it is, but it's interesting. You grew and up in Southern, Southern California,
0: right? When you talk about in, having a big yeah. musical background.
1: Yeah. Well, I grew up in central California, but I went to college in LA and then I moved to New York after college, but I, and I didn't ever really love the Southern California. I wasn't, I appreciated the Eagles and Jackson Brown and Linda Rossette, but they were not my thing per se. I was way more into punk and new wave. And I wasn't really into the California sound, probably because I was from there. But <laughs> I, um, I, so I, I kept coming back to Lawn Boy. Like every few days I'd put it on and I'd listen to it. And then I kept seeing in the village voice that, Fish was playing the Wetlands, which was a pretty hippy dippy club down, you know, in in the Tribeca area. It was until the
0: day it closed. It had that reputation. And it wasn't just a a venue. It was like an activist center also. It
1: was. Yeah, it really was. And um, I, I remember not being able to make any of those shows. There were like three or four that I saw they had played that I couldn't get to. And then um, I saw they were playing a venue called The Marquis, which didn't have a long life in New York. It, although there is a marquee here now, not far from
0: where yeah, that Yeah, it's was. not the same one. It, I, it I did a lot same. of research in preparation for this interview and the marquee that we're going to talk about today. I had to do some, some deep digging to find anything out about it because of what you I said, know. because there's a current day marquee. on I think the Upper West Side, or the Upper East Side, it's not the same
1: it isn't the same. I walked past it the other day, but anyway, so I went to the, I decided I was going to go see them at the marquee, and I don't know, I really don't remember if I had reached out or not to management. There might have been a phone number or something to call. I don't know if I did or I didn't, but I walked up to the marquee and the scene outside was really different. You know, I was just going to CBGBs and seeing bands that were just kind of to the point bang, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I go to the marquee and there's people milling about and they're all kind of, you know, they're all of a college age and they're all kind of just a little out of it. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. Very <laughs> <Their laughs> little <laughs> has
0: changed in some ways, by the way.
1: Oh, it hasn't, <laughs> yeah, which I love actually. So. I remember opening the door. I think there was like a curtain or something. And then I went inside of the club and I could not believe my eyes. I could not believe this audience. The band either had just come on or was just shortly to come on. And I looked around this room and I thought, wow, I am not in this world. Who are these people? How do they know about this? How are they already so enthusiastic? About this band that I really didn't know anything about. And what struck me though, I think a lot of people might go, oh, look at this. There's a thousand people here and they're all excited. Let's jump on this artist and sign them. And I would never do that because I would have to love what I was working on. It's too difficult to sign an artist and not love them. But once they started playing and I saw the musicality and the joy and the Silliness and yeah, you could silliness. hear it in the music, everything was there, and I just thought, My god, this is amazing! And I looked around the room, there wasn't one other A&R person from any label there. I knew them all, but no one mm-hmm. was there.
0: So, you were in on the secret, you struck gold right. at <laughs> well, least in your own head. I guess, in my own head, <laughs> either that or everyone else deemed it too
1: offbeat for them to be bothered with.
0: Well, I want to ask about something you just said. When you talked about, you know, earlier you talked about being a fan. Do you ever have that conflict within you that as an A&R person, fish or otherwise, where you know you have to kind of sell and be a cheerleader? You have to kind of sell this band to your business side, the record company, but you're also a cheerleader for the band. Do you ever internally sense any friction, whether it's fish or any other band?
1: The only friction that ever happens is when the executives... Above you, the people in in charge accuse you of being on the band side instead of on the label side.
0: Is there truth to that,
1: though? Yeah, there's always truth to that. Like I said before, I mean, you really if you do this job, you have to have a creative heart and you have to have a, a, you know, a, a wide acceptance of creative people and and you have to have a desire to help them. Yeah, like, I call myself a, a patron of the arts, you know, whether it's music or if I'm buying a painting of a friend of mine that I think is talented, I mean, you have to feel that. And a lot of times in, in the labels, it's a business, right? They're not thinking of it. And it's not their job to think of it. That's that's my job. Right, right. So I, I got it, of course. But it it's annoying, nevertheless. <laughs>
0: There's a recurring motif in Fish's history as a band that they do things their way on their own time, how, and when they want to do it period. Yeah. And this included signing with a major label, uh, famously, Fish was hesitant to sign with Elektra. I think the popular image of most bands, at least when I was growing up is man, we got to sign with the label. We got to go to the showcase tonight. We got to give our best stuff. There's going to be record execs in the audience. What to you made fish different that they were, like you said, they weren't like angry about it, but they, they were, I think, kind of apathetic based on what I've read. They kind of just didn't care. They shrugged their shoulders at recording for a major label.
1: They didn't care because they didn't need what a label had to offer. Really. Most people want to sign to a label so that they can get on the radio or they can get tour support money to help them tour around the country and fish didn't need that. They were doing it themselves. So there, I don't, there wasn't a big impetus to sign to a label. It just didn't really fit into their, uh, their vision. Um, but I think ultimately when they realized that I certainly wasn't going to try and change them or morph them into something they weren't and the label was going to be supportive, even though the label did try, oh, please, will you do an interview with Rolling Stone? Please, will you go on late night television? Please, can we work a single at rock radio? And it was no, 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 no. Yeah, they were up
0: against the brick wall on Yeah, that. But,
1: but we loved that because, you know, <laughs> that's refreshing. When do you ever see that? Most people are craving for attention and success. And these guys just had confidence. And honestly, I, I really think that it's who they are as people. You know, they, they come from solid families that they're just solid people. They're not lacking. Whereas a lot of people that go into music or theater or what, there's a hole they're trying to fill. Yeah. And Fish doesn't have that. None of them do. But it, so yet the, they're
0: still artists.
1: And yet they're still artists, which makes them so special, so rare. But um, it was not easy to sign them. I, you know, I had many conversations with their manager at the time, who was a very intelligent, young guy. And so John Paluska? John Poluska. Yep. He was, you know, really trying to understand where I was coming from, why, you know, why would I even want to do this? And what would it do for the band? And but the, the biggest thing it would do for the band, honestly, looking back, is, is distribution. Obviously, they had their tapers in the taping section and everyone was sharing music. But when you're on a major label with major distribution, your music gets into every yeah.
0: store. Right find away. it at Sam Goody. Yeah. Right yeah,
1: away. Right away. So they made a very, um, uh, I, I'm not going to say it's modest because I don't remember the numbers at all. But a very smart deal with us where they didn't ask for a ton of money. It was just a reasonable amount of money. Because as John said to me, we want to be in the black right away. We don't want to be beholden to anybody. And from the day that first record shipped uh, a picture of Nectar, and we took on the back catalog, but from the day Nectar shipped, they were in the black.
0: Well, I remember reading in one of their biographies that one, their lawyer looked over the contract and there was a phrase in there. I don't know if you know where I'm getting to with this, but there was a phrase in there that said, whatever album they recorded for Electra had to be commercially sufficient. And their lawyer said, cross that out. We're going to make it technically proficient. <laughs> so, as far as they were concerned, it just needed to be recorded well. It didn't right. have to hit any sales numbers, or they wouldn't have to listen to any notes from the yeah. record company side. <laughs> that's funny.
1: I, I, in a way, that's kind of what commercially uh, accepted means. But yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it's that's funny. how they interpreted it, at least. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's uh, that's true.
0: And you've been involved in signing. They might be giants, is that right? And yes. bare naked ladies too, right? Yes, I did not
1: sign the bare naked Ladies, but I became their A&R person and I A&R'd their record that did very well. And they had a number one single. And,
0: right. Yeah. And so you have a knack, it seems, when you brought it up earlier, that you like to find bands that have a vision already established. And then you kind of like to share it with, the, not your words, but paraphrased, like share it with everyone. And is that part of what you looked for in A&R? Oh, for me, always.
1: I, I was always turned off when young artists would come and sit in my office and we'd be chatting and, uh, you know, I'd say, well, you know, tell me about yourself or your music. Well, uh, what, what do you want me to be? What, what, what should I do? What, what sh- and I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, <laughs> don't ask me what you should do. I, you know, you should be knowing what you should do. So I was always turned off by that. And I always regarded people that had a, a vision. That's the only word. And I didn't care what genre it was in. You know, when I signed Michelle Schacht, she was very unique, very different. I'd never seen anyone like her. But but she could be branded as a folky singer-songwriter, right? And then all these people started sending me demo tapes of folky singer-songwriters And I'm sitting here going, you know, I don't really love folky singers, songwriters. I I just liked her. I thought she was really talented. And then when they might be giants, when I signed them, it was like, I got all these nerdy, geeky pop bands and, and alternative bands. And I'm like, it's not that that's what I like. I just thought they were really good. And then when I signed Fish, it was the same thing. Every jam band out of the, from, you know, the weeds came in and I'm like, It's not that I love jam bands. I just thought Fish was really great. So, so, you know, it was kind of, yeah, you have to know who you are and and be the best at what you're doing. And then, interesting to me.
0: Well, and in the early 90s, it was a buyer's market for jam bands. I mean, this is at the time of the Horde Festival and College Radio and Alt Rock were becoming very popular and accessible. And there were a lot of jam bands that were breaking through with big hit singles. The easiest ones off the top of my head would be Blues Traveler and The Spin Doctors. I think we're both in 1992 to 1994 in that general area. Mm -hmm. And within a year or two of that, Dave Matthews Band became maybe the biggest band of the 90s. So Blues Traveler, who we're going to talk about during the show today, uh, as John Popper makes an appearance, I wonder what made them different than Fish. Like, what were they able to crack a hit single? Was it just that Fish wasn't trying to do that? That it wasn't in their purview. I think that is what it is. To be honest with you, Fish, those guys are
1: talented enough to write a song that would have gone on the radio. I mean, Tweezer, we worked at rock radio. That that's a rock radio song. They yeah. they could do it. I don't think they wanted to do it because I think they understood what it meant. And look what it did mean. Spin doctors, blues traveler. It's like, where are they? Yeah. They had those hit singles and then they just kind of dissipated.
0: Right. And it could, and it should be noted, I think, and you'll speak to this, I hope for people who are newer fans. And to my own credit, I was probably eight years old when the show was played the marquee show we're talking about today. I think it needs to be explained how popular blues traveler was in within the, the mini realm of jam bands in that scene that you were describing when you showed up at the marquee blues traveler might've been the most successful. Like John that, Popper was well at that time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think so at that time, I, I, I might, my memory might be foggy, but I'm not sure they got signed to a major label before I signed fish to Electra, though. They might have been signed later. Same with spin doctors. I think Mm. they got signed later, but they had more desire. Or else they just wrote those songs that the label went, yeah, we're gonna work this. And the artist said, okay, work it. You know, whereas Fish wouldn't have ever said that.
0: Yeah, those were Columbia House artists, as I would call them, like Spin Doctors and Blues Traveler where those 10 CDs for a penny, they were the ones that had the big quarter page ads for yeah. those albums, you know, for Four and Pocketful yeah. of Kryptonite. Yep. Yeah. One last thing I want to ask you about before we get into Fish in the in the early 90s in 1990, I sent you in our notes leading up to this a video that was produced by Electra In, I think, 1991 or maybe 1992, that was made to promote Rift. And in it, you could see how the band is so uncomfortable being on camera to describe the concept of Rift, that it's a concept album of a man sleeping and each song represents a different dream over a night's course of sleep. Trey starts to use the metaphor of it's like a soup. And with a picture of Nectar, we threw everything in and it was a big mishmash of soup. And then Fishman jumps in, kind of to make fun of Trey, but subtly and say, yeah, this is only one flavor of soup now. And before you know it, they're all just stringing along this joke when they're yeah. supposed to be taking it seriously. You know, yeah. and at the same time, Electra included concert footage of the weirdest parts of the band's shows, you know, Fishman playing the bagpipes and... Um, and the vacuum and a lot of footage of fans dancing and smiling and just the contrast between those two things, how comfortable the band is with being weird on stage without how uncomfortable they are being normal off stage. I didn't have any question of follow-up. I just thought it was so goofy.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. And I remember that. And you could see people's uncomfortableness, but to be fair, Most everyone is uncomfortable in those situations when they're Mm self-promoting or the label says we're going to do an electronic press kit or we're going to do a little piece. And we want you to. It's uncomfortable, you know, especially for genuine artists who just really want to speak through their music. But it is part of the the sausage factory, shall we say. And they did very little in that. They still do. Wrong. They still do very right. well. Well, yeah, but they're not on a major label any longer. But they yeah. did, and they're not
0: nineteen more. any longer.
1: Yeah, but they 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 did it with good humor, and and <laughs> and they were they were never bitter about anything. It was just kind of like, oh, come on, we don't want to do that. That's not who we are, you know. And and really, John Paluska was the you know the front of it all you know dealing with him we never went directly to the guys around john's back and said you yeah, we want you yeah, to Yeah of do course this. it was just funny though because it was you know but you got to love that it's like they they had their own scene their own world and that stuff wasn't important When was this show played
0: so let's talk a little bit about 1990, as far as Fish goes, and maybe the music scene at large, as you saw it. So, 1990 for Fish was a year of extreme growth for them, musically and also touring. You know, they were making that jump from just playing regular Main Street college bars to playing proper music venues that had reputations. Before 1990, they were playing those Main Street bars. And toward the end of 1990, they started outgrowing that circuit. And they were just hammering these venues over and over again, mostly in the Northeast, uh, playing three or four times a year so that the person who saw them in January at this venue after the Fish left might bring two friends in March and then bring five friends in December mm-hmm. when they came back. And that's certainly what happened for today's show that we're going to talk about in the marquee, but I just looked over their touring schedule in 1990. They would play anywhere. I looked in March of 1990, they played in the basement of a frat house in Ohio for an intramural hockey team. You know, if it paid, they were there, you know, so they, they weren't totally outgrowing everything, but there were certain spots where they were certainly showing growth.
1: Yeah. I think they looked at touring and performing, um, very, uh, it was very siloed in the Northeast where they had developed a following, they knew what they were worth. But if they went further West, they knew that they had to start, you know, pretty much from scratch to develop an audience there. Other than I think Colorado, where they made a trip early on in their career. And And they did again in
0: 1990 also to tell you, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think they were smart about that. Um, but however, you know, I like I said, I saw them at the Marquis show and it was packed. But then I went to the Chance in Poughkeepsie, which is a little club. And it wasn't there were maybe 30 people in the club. It wasn't packed at all. And uh, but they were nonetheless excited to see them, but it wasn't crowded. So I think they had to just keep developing each club, each region, each area, according to where they were audience wise. And they did, they were humble about that. It's not like they thought, oh, gee, we can sell out New York city. So we're going to sell out Columbus, Ohio or
0: something. No. And can you tell us a little bit about the marquee? Because from what I could find again, which was not much is that it was all the way West yeah. All the way west in Manhattan, uh, maybe the western edge of Chelsea. Even if you're being generous as a realtor, you know, to tell someone, "Oh, this is in Chelsea." What I found is that it was on twenty first West Twenty first Street between Tenth and Eleventh Avenue. Is that the market? That
1: is exactly where it was. That's exactly right. right.
0: And like these days, if I go to a show at the High Line, I'm like, "Oh man, how am I going to get there? It's going to be, you know, from Penn Station. That's like a twenty five minute walk. And this is even farther west than that." Yeah
1: this is further west and and certainly at that time in new york it
0: was the wild west out yeah there.
1: it wasn't it wasn't a, a populated area as it is today now yeah, there's a
0: reason like, that it, that just north of it is called hell's kitchen like there's a reason for that <laughs> nickname you
1: know right yeah so i had never been to the marquee before that gig either I, it wasn't really a um, you know, on my circuit of, of venues that I went to nightly or whatever. But, um, and I don't know if I ever went after that, actually.
0: Well, it went out of business after, you mentioned it was short-lived. I think it was yeah. only there for about two years. And then it turned, I think, into a either a gay club or a dance club, or maybe a gay dance club. I don't know. And then like a yeah. Spanish flamenco club. And it, it changed hands a million times. And I'm sure now it's an art gallery or something.
1: Oh, yeah. has to be. I'm going to go buy it this week. Yeah. So yeah, that was the marquee. That was, um, you know, that was, uh, like I said, an un- unusual club at the time in New York, not a regular place to play, but Fish was known for that. You know, they would produce their own shows a lot of times. Poluska would rent out, um, what's the place in Paradise in Boston? In Boston, Is that what yeah. it's
0: Called. Yep. Yeah. The Paradise and they, Rock would, club. they
1: would promote their own show there. They weren't part of the paradise uh, booking situation. They would just tell the paradise, we want to rent your show. I mean, we want to rent your venue. And then they would do everything, including bring in their own security for the show.
0: Yeah. Well, Mike Gordon tells a story that uh, exactly about the paradise that they couldn't get booked. Mm Paluska would send their press and never get a phone call back, tapes and everything. And then, yeah, they just decided to rent it out. They bust people from Vermont, from Burlington. They had two big buses, uh, coach buses. They bring everyone down, and as the band was loading in with their, you know, broken amps and their weird gear, and they were wearing their flannel shirts that didn't look like a professional band. The bouncers were making fun of them. Who are these guys? And then they <laughs> sold out the first night to the point where they didn't need to rent it out the second the second time.
1: That's exactly right. They were very smart about that. Um, but, and then they promoted all of their own festivals and stuff later on. Uh, but yeah,
0: they were the first band to really do something like that. And it got to a point in 1998 where they were recording, uh, the story of the ghost album and they wanted to play a couple shows just on a whim. So they played the Island tour, which were two shows at, in Long Island at the Nassau Coliseum and two shows in Rhode Island at what I think the Providence Civic Center or the Dunkin' Donuts Center. And I remember it being such a huge deal at the time, they didn't buy any advertising anywhere. They, didn't add, they only announced it on their website. And this is 1998. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to remember sometimes how ubiquitous pop-up ads are now. But to just announce something on a website, the Coliseum is like 16,500 people. It's
1: amazing. I mean, and speaking of websites... They were the first artists that I had worked with who had their own website. You know, it was before we had email at Electra. I mean, we weren't connected in any way, uh, electronically speaking. And they had their own website. And I kept thinking, God, wonder what what that is or what does it look like? Or how do you even
0: get to this website? You know, it was
1: just so foreign (laughs) to me. Like, I didn't get it.
0: Through Prodigy And, and AOL, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> That's you, through your internet service provider.
1: Right, which nobody and, had.
0: <laughs> and just one, one note of 1990, back to what you said earlier about distribution. In 1990, they released their <laughs> album Lawn Boy, which had a big issue with distribution. They hired a, a company called Absolute Ogogo Records that yeah. pressed, I think it was, I could be wrong on this number, but 10,000 copies. And then Absolute Ogogo went bust before they could release it. So Mike Gordon, the bass player, has said several times that that's one big reason why they weren't so excited to sign with a label. Because look, they tried and look what happened. You know, as if they were on the receiving end of a divorce. Like, uh, my first marriage went like this, so I'm never getting married again.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I understand that. But I don't think if they were really thinking about it, you cannot put an indie distributor against the We are one more Electro-Atlantic distribution. So I think the distribution worked out fine for them.
0: And the marquee, one last question I have for you about it. It was their next venue up after the wetlands. They'd kind of outgrown it. And I had been to the wetlands a few times before it closed. The capacity was 500. And that's elbow to elbow. That's if they really, really pushed it. I couldn't find any photos or video of the marquee. Because any video I did find just focused on the band who was on stage. I think it was the video I found was the Luna Chicks and yeah. the Rollins and the and the Rollins band, but yeah. nothing showed the audience. Are yeah. you able to remember anything about what it was like being inside the marquee or how big it was? Anything physically?
1: Yeah, I I can see the venue in my mind's eye perfectly, but I think it was about a thousand capacity. Oh wow! If I'm not
0: mistaken.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> but it was a, a large stage and sort of a, I'm remembering it as sort of a half moon kind of a room where the crowd was, it was more wide than deep. Um, but yeah, I think it was close to a thousand people if I'm not wrong.
0: <clears throat> That's, you know, it's funny. Cause I looked up contemporaries, like who else played the a venue, like the marquee in 1990, the list that I found was Blues Traveler, of course, the Spin Doctors, of course, but the Black Crows also who were starting to explode at that time. Uh, The Rollins Band I mentioned, Debbie Harry played it solo. Uh, Yola Tango, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Pantera, uh, the Screaming Trees, Bob Mould. So Fish was not, you know, they weren't at the bottom row anymore. They were in very good company. Oh, totally.
1: These were all established artists at that time. <clears throat> yeah, that, it wasn't small, that's for sure. I, I'm sure it was about a thousand. Set one.
0: So let's get into the show itself. The first uh-huh. song that they kicked off with was Runaway Jim," which was new that year, but has since become a classic. It sounded like everything was at kind of a higher pitch and a higher frequency than what we're used to today. And you could tell they're practiced, but they weren't quite as eloquent as we're used to now when they're playing Madison square garden sold out four nights, they're still prone to a couple little mistakes. Did you notice since you first, this was your first show, seeing them live. Did you, how quickly did the musicality grab you like their expertise on their instruments?
1: Yeah. The musicality grabbed me immediately. That was the first thing that I was attracted to because but it's funny. You, you sent me the set list and I listened to it and I had those exact same thoughts. I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is this is watching a baby fish yeah. there. It's almost like it's studied and they're really working hard to do the right thing and to play the right musically. You know, it's just deliberate. It's not like it is now where it's just second nature to them. But it was really sweet to listen to that, you know, those early days. But yeah, musically, I was blown away straight away because, well, first of all, the music was different from most of the stuff I was listening to or going to see. But secondly, the way they interacted with each other, you could just see there was a musical conversation going on constantly, even in those days. And it's true. And when I went to Vermont, I'll just sidebar sure they told me about all the musical games they played in rehearsal and it all made sense you know when you see them live like geez these guys are you know musically they know each other you know perfectly well like there's nothing they don't know or can't follow or can't keep up or can't trace back or do whatever. But anyway, so yeah, it was the musicality was the first thing. And then the songs were so catchy. I I have to admit, maybe it's because that was my first show, or maybe it's because, you know, I did a lot of fish in those days and I do a lot less now, but these are my favorite songs of theirs. And they always will be, you know, it's like, I'm Divided Sky is probably one of my favorite songs. You know, I just love it. I used to listen to it in my office, nonstop. I'm sure the rest of the staff would be like, what is she doing?
0: <laughs> well, too bad for them. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so speaking of musicality, the next song is Foam, which yeah. is, I think Trey has even called it one of the most difficult songs that they play. And yeah. this is really hard. You could hear it. And my I was trying to listen to it through your ears. Yeah, through an A&R person's ears. But my thought is, what kind of audience comes out to see a band that plays music like this? just so weird and it's almost like they're still in the practice who're making sure they're getting it right. it's very earnest.
1: It is very earnest but but to your point, I think that was the the third thing that grabbed me. The first was the musicality second was the songs, the melodies and the funny lyrics or wry lyrics or but the third thing was wow people are really responding to this music. Like these people love this music and they clearly know it. And that was so impressive to me. And as an AR person who's got two hats on, the, the talent scout and the business person, to me, that just was made total sense. Like this makes sense to me. Here's a whole segment of, of people listening to this music.
0: And it clicks really... In a two songs later, they played Horn," where yeah. Trey introduces Tom Marshall, who is in attendance, talking about songwriters, right? And then next up was Reba, which immediately gets a really big cheer at the time it had only been around for just over a year, 14 months. And for all intents and purposes, it's the same song it is today, but the crowd responds immediately, like they already have their favorites. And I thought that was an interesting thing to hear. That they that it, as early as this is in the band's career, right? Page joined in 1986, so they've only been together really in their lineup for four years at this point. But the fans have already chosen their favorites.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. But the next one is one of my favorites, Llama. What I about like it? The really punchy, rocking. <laughs> yeah, those are my favorites. Well, other than divided stuff. <laughs> i <laughs>
0: But it's one of my favorites, too, because I got into Fish by listening to A Picture of Nectar, and yeah. Llama kicks off that album. So yeah. to me, it's like the best, the best yeah. rocker that they have. And uh, they then go really weird with Colonel Forbin's Ascent and Fly Famous Mockingbird. Yeah. And I was wondering about your look in this, that how could someone in A&R justify or explain something like this to a record label? Yeah, there's this band with this internal fairy tale. That some people in the audience get, most probably don't, and it has all these weird names that the lead guitarist wrote as his college thesis. I wanted, I want you to sign them. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm not going to lie because I think that there were certain moments, and and that that's one of them where I was totally lost. Like, what is this? What is going on? Uh, I only understood it later when Trey would explain sometimes to the audience or whatever. But at, at that show, I had no clue. But again, I just thought, okay. At the at that time, how old would I have been? And uh, ninety, I, I was twenty nine or something. I'm older than most of the people in this audience. So you maybe know, how old something. was the audience? What did the audience look I like? I think like? they were like college kids, like twenty. 21 and two I don't know if it was a 21 and older club I can't remember that but they were in their early early 20s I would say maybe if it was younger 18 and older club then they would have been that um but I was older so I'm thinking well maybe this is just something I'm not getting because I'm (laughs) 29 uh but anyway yeah it was odd but but that was endearing to me too because it's like Well, they had the guts to go and play these songs that are just fantastical and not really, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. You know, it was just like, whoa, they're just creative.
0: Right. And it's not enough for it to be entertaining and fun to listen to. It has to be challenging also. It has to challenge both the band and the listener.
1: Yes, exactly. And and I, I learned all of this as I saw more shows and as I got to know them and, uh, but the first time it was just kind of this, you know, bang, it hit me in the face. Like, Whoa, this is something completely <laughs> different. I, you know, I was attracted to it, but it was different.
0: I love hearing you say this because I still see them regularly. I have a couple shows in Atlantic city coming up in a couple of weeks and fingers crossed that indoor venues will be all right around new year's yeah. Eve that I can go see them at Madison square garden again. But every time I go, there's always someone around me that it's their first show. And they say the same exact things that you're saying right now. Yeah. You know, it's uh, where they need something explained to them or, you know, they talk how oh, Divided Sky is my favorite song. You yeah. know, it's it, it really is. It's heartening. It really is. It's really wonderful.
1: I was going to say, and the thing that's so amazing is that, you know, 30 years down, it still sounds unique. You know, yeah. no one else sounds like this. So that's why people are still going. Well, what? What is this? So yeah, it's
0: amazing. And after Forbins and *Mockingbird*, they play another uh, saw another suite that's been constant and consistent throughout their whole career. They played it the other night. Uh, Mike's *Hydrogen weekapog mm-hmm. and this is just you need a shot of adrenaline. If you didn't like them yet, this would yeah. do it for you, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Week of Pog is one of my favorites too. I just love it. I always like Mike's song, always.
0: And to close it all out is from Jinta, Golgi Apparatus, which is always an incredible closer. It's, in my opinion, the the most versatile fish song. It can be played anywhere in a show. It's one of their earliest songs. Trey wrote it with Tom Marshall when they were like high school kids and they learned about songs in science class. They learned about terms in science class. (laughs) And they turned it into this that they played, I think, this past Saturday in Alpharetta, Georgia. Amazing. So did you see a lot of bands with uh, a two set structure?
1: No, at that time, if you were a young band and, and, but like I said, most of the bands I went to see were probably aspiring to be signed to a label. You wouldn't play two sets. You would play one killer short set and be done. Um, But no, I, I, when they said we'll be back or whatever, you know, I was like, what? (laughs) I thought, my God, they're coming back. And also, honestly, as an a and person or, or, or a record music executive in general, you see so much music night after night after night. And it's, it becomes your job, right? It, there's enjoyment in it, but it is a job. And to think that, oh no, you mean I have to stay here longer? I, I thought I'd be home by now. But in this case, it was totally worth it and exciting to stay. Set
0: two. So they opened the second set with The Landlady, which was played at almost every show in 1990 and 1991 before it was shelved, uh, I think after 94, for 15 years as a standalone song. And this was kind of the band you mentioned before about genre. They were kind of showing that they're stretching themselves, that they could play Mm -hmm. Latin rock just as well as progressive rock, just as well as hard rock with Llama and stuff like that. So this is a pretty ballsy opener to open a second set with. Totally.
1: I mean, that is is really like, I I mean, you could almost lose your audience playing something like that. Especially at the beginning of a second set.
0: Right. Yeah. People, to exactly. go. I've already waited. I've already set out the break, and this is what they're going to open with. Let's get out of here.
1: Yeah. No. But it. It. You're right. It shows their chops, and it shows their. Again, they're students of music, and they. They love all genres. I mean, they really do, and they can play them all beyond proficiently.
0: They're they're experts. Yeah, to the and point it, where Trey is co-writing a music, a Broadway musical in 2010. You know, hands on I a heart. I went body. to see. I know. I went to see
1: it, and I, I saw, uh, in La Jolla when it uh, debuted. Uh, amazing.
0: Yeah, he's not just him, but the whole band. They're oh, they're, yeah. they're music omnivores. Yes. Yeah. yeah, they are. And they followed it up with Possum, which is very straightforward Southern blues, um, kind of. Leonard Skinner type. If yeah. you like that, you'll like this. They, they played uh We Wish You a Merry Christmas tease. Let's not forget, <laughs> okay. the show is December 28th, right? So happy holidays from Trey.
1: Yeah, I, I, I heard that. I hadn't remembered they'd done that, but I, that was fun to listen to.
0: And they followed that up with The Squirming Coil and Tweezer, which were two big songs. At the time, you know, I'd have grown to be, I keep using this phrase, fan favorites, but this is, you said that these are your favorite batch of songs. Now they're known as a jam band, but there aren't really a lot of, there's not a lot of improvisation in this. This is very song focused. It's song focused.
1: And I think that is because it's, well, I I think that's because it was earlier in their career and they were just getting the songs written and being able to perform them. I, I mentioned, this is just a funny aside to my daughter that I was doing this podcast and she's like, oh my gosh, she's like all those jams. And I said, no, actually this set doesn't have a lot of jams, yeah. it's just the songs. Because
0: I think, because it was early on really. And even without a lot of extended improv, the end of the squirming coil did have a pretty cool jam. Usually it's a piano outro, but this time the whole band steps in, which is one of the best versions I've ever heard. which again, it's not fully baked yet, but they did segue into Manteca, which also appeared on A Picture of Nectar and goes back into Tweezer, which had that old school ending where they kind of dribble and fall apart at the end very, very slowly.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh God.
0: And then again, stretching their musical talents and their abilities with genre, they played the Okipa ceremony, which got a big cheer and then she played My Sweet One, which was a bluegrass song.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember when I first saw them do an a cappella barbershop quartet and I was like, there's nothing these guys can't do.
0: Do you remember where, when that was, or even what song?
1: It was in the early nineties. Um, and it was sweet Adeline. I'm pretty sure. Uh, but I don't remember where it was.
0: Where was that?
1: I don't remember. Oh, it might have been at the Roseland.
0: Oh, well that, that's probably 1992. Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. Because I remember uh, reading that they started doing that. I think Paige explained it. I could be wrong on that detail. But they looked at each other and they started playing small theaters at that time in the mm-hmm. early 90s, like the Colonial Theater in New Hampshire. And they said, well, these theaters were built for unmiked music. Yeah. So why don't we learn how to do that? And after all, we are a quartet. That's
1: right. It might have been at the Capitol Theater in... Oh, in uh,
0: Portchester.
1: Porchester. Yeah.
0: Actually, the first yeah. time. And then after that was your favorite was was Divided Sky. They My very
1: X. favorite.
0: Yeah, I just love that song. I love everything about it. <laughs> I, and it's so it must have been so impressive to hear them play this epic live, especially to someone like you who hadn't heard it before.
1: Yeah, I, I had heard the, the album, I think, by this time. OK, because but I hadn't heard it live ever.
0: So you saw them uh, on the cover of uh, CMJ. It it is. Yeah. So you saw a on the cover. And then I went back
1: and got Junta. Yeah. So I had the both records uh, before I saw
0: them. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And my comment in our notes at the end of Divided Sky was, "How could anyone not like this?" But the amount of shit I've gotten for being a big fish fan, there are ways that people could not like this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I guess. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe my colleagues back in the day don't like it because they yeah, heard well, it so much coming out of my
0: office. Well, again, their loss. Yeah. And, and after that, they brought up John Popper as a guest yeah. who was the bigger star, at least among yeah. the jam band community at the time. And they played a song called No Good Trying, which is a Sid Barrett song, which yeah. if Fish wasn't weird enough yet, let's get the strangest member of Pink Floyd, yeah. which is saying a lot in itself. And cover <laughs> a song remember- by him.
1: And I remember when they announced that they were going to play that and I thought, Oh my God, (laughs) these guys are really, they are in their own lane. Yeah. Yeah. For
0: a band that was very, as we discussed before, uncomfortable talking about their own album or promoting it. They were very much feeling themselves on stage,
1: (laughs) but they still didn't talk a lot.
0: No. And they rarely do still.
1: They've never really talked. Yeah.
0: And so John Popper comes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trey, I imagine, was on the drums, right? Do you remember?
1: Yes, I think so at this point because Fish was up front, right?
0: Yep. So Trey gets on. John Popper plays a harmonica solo between No Good Trying and then Hold Your Head Up. They switch back and they play a song that's only been played thrice Ooh. in all of Fish's history called Don't Get Me Wrong which I did a little research, was co-written between Trey and John Popper. It's basically a blues riff. Yeah. With John Popper taking lead vocals. Do you remember uh, what it was like to see, uh, first of all, Fish as four virtuosos, but John Popper, who is incomparable on the harmonica. Yeah, yeah.
1: He he is, and he was quite a presence. And uh, I remember being... I guess I was first surprised, like, oh, my God, there's John Popper coming up to join them. And I think I also was a little surprised at how how fraternal they were, how close they were when I didn't really know their the relationship between between them. Um, and I mean, he's amazing. We used to kind of tease and jo- joke about him. Me and my colleagues, not not fish. Because it's just like, oh my goodness, how many notes can you play?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no kidding.
1: But he is astounding, so it that was exciting to see that. And it, you know, uh, brought a little celebrity uh stardust to the show.
0: Well, it's funny you said, How many notes can you play between John Popper and Trey? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's enough to last you a decade. <laughs> it is. And then they close it all up, at least for the set before the encore, with Funky Bitch, a cover of a Sun Seals mm-hmm. Blues song, which Mike. I I was wondering what was up with this. It, It sounded like he was trying to play like an old blues soul, man. And I love Mike Gordon and he's comfortable where he's comfortable singing. But man, this was a weird take on funky bitch.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really odd. I don't remember it from that night, but listening the other day to it, I was like, oh, okay.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll leave it there. Who are we to tell them? Yeah. Yeah. And for the encore, two really accessible, fun songs bouncing around the room and Highway to Hell.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. I mean, I love bouncing around the room, too. It is also a favorite, but I remember them ending on Highway to Hell. And I thought this is just amazing. Like, there they are just going for it. Rock and roll.
0: And how long after this did you approach them uh, on Electra's behalf? Uh, that night. Wow, really?
1: <laughs> I, I I found them backstage that night. Yes. And I told them who I was. I'm sure I gave them my card like a told, geeky record executive. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, they they were polite and I don't think, I don't know what they thought, but I was like, I must I must continue down this road and, and get to know these guys. So yeah, it was that night.
0: And to wrap it up, about how long did you work with them before you moved on from Elektra?
1: So it was... Unfortunately, they were the last band that I signed to Electra. I signed them in 91 and we did Nectar, a picture of Nectar, and then started Rift and went through that process of hiring the producer, etc. And then I left in 92, but I continued to sort of oversee the making of that record.
0: And so. you still see Fish at all? Oh, I do. I
1: went to the Hollywood Bowl um, right before the pandemic. I took my husband. His his screensaver on his phone is the lights from the Hollywood Bowl. And, you know, I saw Trey and uh, and um, Paige that in after sound check. I, I hung out with them for a minute. And uh, like I said, I saw Trey, of course, do hands on a hard body. But um, yeah, I will always go see them and stay in touch. And I look forward to seeing, if I had been in New York, I would have loved to have gone to the Baker's dozen, but if, you know, next time they play in LA or or here, I will definitely go. Fan for life, huh? Oh yeah.
0: Fan and friend (laughs) for sure. Sue Drew of Cobalt Music. I can't thank you enough and I want to tell you on a personal level, knowing that you worked with them on a picture of Nectar, that was the album that grabbed me. So we literally would not be here if it weren't for you, even though it's my podcast, you made it happen. It's <laughs> well, they real, real made it cyclical up. here. Yeah, that's true. but it's
1: so, all them. And uh, Brian, it was my pleasure, a real joy. Thank you for, for inviting me on.
0: And that's it for today's interview with Sue Drew of Cobalt Music Publishing. Now, when Sue picked a show from late 1990s, so many years ago, it only makes sense that there would be some discussion points that either need to be corrected or expanded upon. With that in mind, it is now time for the Attendance Bias Fact Check. Attendance Bias Fact Check. First off, the Electra promo video that the band used when they released Rift and they use the soup analogy that Sue and I discussed in detail, is available in today's show notes. And just as a general fact check, or reference I guess, many of the references and paraphrases that I brought up in today's interview, such as Fish's lawyer changing the language in their contract with Electra, are from a variety of published sources. However, I've been reading and researching so much about fish for so many decades that I had to rely on my memory and my quick recall. So I wasn't able to track down every quote and every fact to its original source. So I'm just going to do a big umbrella sourcing for all of these different books and sources that I've used. So that said, I have to give a lot of credit to the Fish Compendium by Dean Budnick. The Fish Book, compiled and edited by Richard Gare, The Fish Biography by Park Pewterberg, Fish.net, and of course FishBase, the organization and publication that originally interviewed Sue. FishBase first published their interview with Sue in 2017, and the link to that interview is in today's show notes. When discussing Fish's commercial success in terms of album sales, Sue is quick to point out that a live one went gold upon its release. Since the mid-90s, Fish has had a very strong sales record, as Junta has gone platinum, and Lawn Boy, A Picture of Nectar, Rift, Hoist, Billy Breathes, and Farmhouse have all gone gold. I brought up Blues Traveler and The Spin Doctors breaking through with hit records in the early 90s, but I couldn't exactly pin down when each of their albums came out. So a fact check on that. The Spin Doctor's Pocketful of Kryptonite was released in August 1991 with the singles Little Miss Can't Be Wrong peaking at number 17 on the U.S. charts in 1992 and Two Princes peaking at number 7 on the U.S. charts in 1993. For Blues Traveler, their hit album, Four, was released on September 13, 1994. It sold over 6 million copies and the singles Hook peaked at number 23 and Runaround peaked at number 8 on the Billboard charts. I brought up that in 1990, Fish played at a fraternity house to celebrate an intramural hockey team in Ohio. This show was played on March 28th, 1990 at Denison University in Granville, Ohio. The show is available on fish.in as a soundboard recording, and interestingly, it features the debuts of Tweezer and Runaway Jim, tied off with a rare whipping post encore. When talking about Fish's touring schedule in 1990, I erroneously said that the band played Telluride in 1990. The band did play several gigs in Colorado that year, including shows in Crested Butte, Boulder, Fort Collins, and Colorado Springs, but none in Telluride. Sue remembers seeing Fish sing Sweet Adeline at the Roseland Ballroom, but she couldn't pin down exactly when it was. I suggested that maybe it was in 1992. I was wrong, however. Even though Fish played Roseland in 1992, they did not perform Sweet Adeline at that show. Upon further research, they did perform Sweet Adeline at Roseland on February 6th, 1993. And then later she suggests that maybe she heard Sweet Adeline at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester. If that's the case, then it had to be on April 27th, 1991. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I would like to extend tremendous thanks to Sue Drew of Cobalt Music Publishing for offering her time and her generosity and, of course, her memories and her opinions to talk about it on the show. I'd like to thank all of you listeners for joining me every week. I'd like to thank Fish.net for helping me out so much with the fact check, as well as Fish.in Fishin for providing the soundboard recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please, please, please subscribe and follow the podcast on whichever app that you choose. Leave a rating and a review and find me on social media, mostly on Twitter and Instagram. Reach out, say hello, and I'll send you a free sticker. So again, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.